Mrs. Fortress on a Hill with Henry, Danny, Kagan, and Giovanni. Welcome everyone to Fortress on a Hill, a podcast about U.S. foreign policy, anti-imperialism, skepticism, and the American way of war. I'm Henry. Thank you for joining us today. Um, with these is uh, my two co-hosts in crime, uh, Giovanni and Kagan. Fellas, uh, how are you doing today? Excellent. Ready to have this fun discussion. So fun. <laughs> um, and uh, we are, uh, Giovanni, how are you doing, man? Doing great, doing great. Uh, uh, I got a number of taking the mute off when I talk, <laughs> but I'm going, doing great. Happy to be here. Happy to uh, see how I talk to our guests on uh, engaged to this discussion. Hell yeah. So we are joined today by uh, Ross Caputi. Did I say that right, Ross? Close enough. And uh, Scott Spaulding. Um, both of these fellas are uh, United States Marine Corps veterans, and they participated in the Second Battle of Fallujah, as U.S. history books put it. Um, I would have to definitely agree with the title of Ross's book that he wrote, uh, co-wrote about this, that it is, we are talking about a siege. We are talking about a siege of a city over a long period of time and a lot of different events. And I thought it would be really instructive for us to go through and talk about some of the things that stuck out to us, both as, you know, with our, with our guests here, with their on the ground experiences, but uh, much more importantly is their views and advocacy about a different set of experiences about the experiences of the Iraqis on the ground of the people who actually lived through the siege of Fallujah. And, uh, we're going to just uh, talk about it, talk about what sticks out to us and, uh, how it can be seen as, uh, an example or a, as a bit of a blueprint for, um, the war in Iraq and indeed the, the war on terror. So first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to read a, a little portion of the introduction to Ross's book and, um, Ross has, has done an incredible amount of advocacy and work on Fallujah as a city, on the people who live in Fallujah, on the environmental destruction that has taken place there since the U.S. occupation. So here's the quote. Quote, we assert that the way in which the conflict is remembered is of great political, legal, and moral significance, particularly if we are serious about addressing the injustices heaped upon ordinary Iraqis. Current U.S. foreign policy in Iraq continues to ignore how the invasion of 2003 and its subsequent occupation contributed to Iraq's ongoing problems, refusing to acknowledge how the crimes of the United States' closest allies in Iraq, the Iraqi government and sectarian militias, are making resolution and reconciliation impossible. The United States' current strategy is in many ways a more limited version of previous mistakes and miscalculations, its apparent inability or willingness to understand how each operation of Fallujah set the conditions for the next, contributing to what became a regional conflagration, has at times been breathtaking. The history of what happened to Fallujah illustrates the time-honored folly of seeking to apply external colonial military solutions to the complex political problems of other nations a historical lesson that, sadly, the powerful seem unable or reluctant to learn. 
Ross, I was hoping we would start with you. Can you talk about the initial invasion and what was happening with Fallujah at that time? And will you bring us up to say just before the mercenaries were killed? Okay. So, uh, spring of 2003 to about spring of 2004. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I don't know how much detail I should get into about why we invaded Iraq, the international opposition to the invasion. The U.S. was making the case that Saddam Hussein was not only a threat to his neighbors, to neighboring countries, but also potentially a threat to us through what people call the nexus argument. Unstable dictators could potentially form an alliance with Al-Qaeda and lend them weapons of mass destruction. We knew Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction because we gifted and sold a great many of them to him uh, while we were supporting him during the Iraq war. There were ongoing uh, weapons inspections at the time, although it was a bit murky to what extent Saddam had been looting the, the weapons inspectors and hiding potential WMDs. Um, it was an ongoing process. The U.S. said that the weapon inspectors had failed and, you know, they weren't able to do their job because Saddam Hussein was um, throwing up roadblocks to the process. Others within the, the UN Security Council um, and other people in the UN said that, you know, it was a process that was working, it just needed more time. So the US infamously went unilateral, decided to invade the country without a UN Security Council authorization. So it was um, technically an, an illegal invasion of the country. Um, we invaded March 19, 2003 within uh, about a month, the invasion phase, um, over 6,000 civilians were killed, mostly through the, the shock and awe bombing of the country. At the time, um, it, it's really hard to measure how Iraqis felt about us invading their country. Um, I think, to, to my knowledge, there was a great deal of mixed feelings. Very few Iraqis liked Saddam Hussein. There was very little support for him th throughout the country. Although at the same time, I mean, nobody wants a foreign country invading their country, especially when they're doing, you know, shock and awe bombing, uh, particularly in the manner that we were doing it in urban areas like Baghdad with huge amounts of civilian casualties. Uh, nonetheless, it happened. Um, and then we rolled into the invasion, uh, the occupation phase, uh, starting around, um, so now we're in uh, May. Uh, of 2003. At that point, there really wasn't any armed occupation to, uh, armed resistance to the occupation. However, the U.S. then formed the Coalition Provisional Authority, which was sort of a, an interim government led by diplomats of the invading occupying forces, uh, who were then running the show in Iraq. And that's where there started to be resistance, uh, first political resistance and then later military resistance because there were foreign powers running Iraq and not allowing Iraqis to, to have a, a participatory role in creating a transitional government. And that's exactly how the whole conflict in Fallujah started. Basically it started, uh, the fight started over U.S. interference in the democratic process in Fallujah. Fallujians wanted to set up their own um, post-Saddam uh, city council to run city affairs, whereas the U.S. wanted to run the whole show. They wanted to have a, a military presence in the city, 
Uh, people in Fallujah didn't want that for, for mostly for cultural reasons. They felt it was an invasion of privacy. They felt it got in the way of kids being able to go to school and stuff like that. There was a real, there was an infamous, uh, incident, um, I believe it was in May of 2003 where U S soldiers took over the school, school building. Uh, this was the 82nd airborne took over a school building in Fallujah. We're using it as sort of like an oversight post. Um, and there was a, a protest outside the school because people just wanted the U.S. soldiers to move to the outskirts of the city so kids could go to school and they could go about their business. They didn't like soldiers being on roofs with uh, binoculars because uh, in, in Iraqi culture, that's a huge invasion of privacy. They didn't like the checkpoints. They particularly didn't like women being searched at checkpoints. Uh, and it's not really sure, it's not really clear what happened. Uh, but at some point, U.S. soldiers started firing into the crowd. Some... Um, U.S. forces say it was in response to gunfire coming from below. Um, others on the scene, including journalists, say there was no gunfire from the crowd. Perhaps somebody threw a shoe. A soldier overreacted, fired into the crowd. Nonetheless, um, over a dozen people were killed. Several dozen were wounded. And that really kicked off the armed insurgency in Fallujah, which became the largest center of insurgency in the entire country. So now we're taught, now we're like, you know, summer of 2003, where the insurgency is beginning to pick up steam throughout Iraq, but particularly in Fallujah. And there's this tit for tat kind of back and forth between insurgent groups and the U.S. occupying forces in Fallujah. As insurgents started to push harder and harder to try to kick the soldiers out of their city, U.S. soldiers would respond with, uh, you know, uh, more and more combat, combat tactics to try to squash the insurgency. Never really listening to what the fundamental problem was, was that they just wanted to govern their own affairs. So this was the, the ongoing um, fuel of the conflict. People in Fallujah were fighting because they wanted to run their own affairs. They didn't want foreigners, you know, running their, their, running their affairs. They wanted to put their own post-Saddam government together, and the U.S. just wasn't allowing that to happen. Things continued to escalate all the way until uh, spring of 2004 with the famous uh, Blackwater incident. At that point, dozens of civilians have been killed in the conflict between uh, the insurgents and the and U.S. soldiers. And then, uh, there, you know, just like one day, these, these uh, Blackwater contractors decided to roll through Fallujah. Most likely, people in Fallujah didn't know that they were contractors and not U.S. soldiers because, you know, they're driving through there in the Humvees, I believe. Well, the, um, the vehicles got ambushed. They dragged the, the bodies out of, out of the vehicles, mutilated them. This was all caught on camera, became this huge media incident. I believe this is um, late May, like May 28th uh, of 2004. It was right after a change of command to uh, the Army unit left, Marine unit rolled. March. Through. It was uh, March. March. Thank you. March 28th. Um, became this huge media spectacle. And the way the media presented it was, you know, these were civilians who were attacked for, for no reason at all, driven by a sense of anti-Americanism, religious fanaticism. Um, and it created enough outrage back in the U.S. to, to pressure a, retali a retaliatory operation in response to this. And that would be the first siege of Fallujah. Um, and I can say more about, you know, why this is siege warfare and, and why phrasing it as a battle isn't really appropriate. Um, but, uh, I think that got us to where you want it to be. Is there anything else you want me to touch on? No, no, that was, that was great. Um, so I, 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 I don't know how I found stumbled on this just today, 
Um, but I've, I've done different searches about what, uh, about the deaths of the mercenaries and, you know, kind of the circumstances around that. And it, it actually turns out from, I don't know if they're records from Blackwater or just, just journalists stuff, but there were actually two teams that were, I don't know if the teams were supposed to be traveling together or they were traveling separately. Um, but a, a Blackwater manager, I don't know exactly what their expertise was told, uh, gave them a route to go through directly through Fallujah, which was an area that the, the, our coalition forces weren't really going into Fallujah, uh, certainly not in mass and certainly not, um, much of the time. Um, and so these two teams, which, you know, the, the kind of guys that we're talking about here, we're talking about, you know, former, former army Rangers, former green berets, um, maybe Navy SEALs. But usually, guys that are are pretty tactically and technically proficient in in what that they're what they're doing, and so the two teams, one team went through Fallujah, and that's the story that we know of the four four uh, mercenaries uh, who were killed, um, and then one team decided to travel around Fallujah. They made it to their destination. They did whatever mission they had, and they made it back to Baghdad in the same day. Um. And so it, it seems that the, 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 the route, you know, that I, I don't know exactly why that other team still went, went in that way, but at least that there was some very specific, um, actions by the other team, knowing that that would, was, and, and absolutely should have been treated as a, a hostile place to go, not a place to go with, especially not with that, with the amount of personnel they were supposed to have. They were also down to other uh, mercenaries that would have been their, uh, door gunners. So there was a lot of reasons as to why this ended up happening, not including the fact that these guys were driving through an area that was very hostile to coalition forces, um, at the time. Um, and so it's, 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 uh, oftentimes we don't, we don't know these, these details. We don't know, um, you know, did the military mean for it to happen that way? Was it a, was it an accident? Was it a, you know, how, how did it end up coming about that way? And so I go through all this because it, it, after reading that today, it reminded me of an ambush that I survived going through when, uh, my, my platoon was, uh, was in the Jaff. We were, we were, um, it was around the time around April 4th when, um, McTad al-Sadr's Mahdi army was starting to rise up partially in response to what was happening in Fallujah, but partially because of the CPA's own actions towards, um, Seder and the squad leaders from the base that we were traveling to had told my Lieutenant, do not drive through the city, drive around the city. We have a specific route. We'll show it to you here. That was not the route he sent us on. And so, um, five shot out tires later, we managed to make it to our base. Thankfully, everybody was still. Uh, in one piece, minus a few, uh, a few simple shrapnel wounds, but still based upon the amount of fire we went through, we felt very, very lucky that we were able to make it through that. Um, and so I, you know, I, I point this out because it's, it, it, that all of the different factors that can play into these kind of situations and why it was chosen to do this, why soldiers fell back to a certain spot and not a different one. Um, but that it was, it was for, for a time, people thought that they were making the, the calls right. They thought that it was okay. It's okay to drive through Najaf. 
in early April 2004 when it is filled with with uh, Mahdi Army guys trying to consolidate their own base there and trying to push back coalition forces. So anyways, uh, enough about that. Um, so uh, Roscoe, uh, yes, please do uh, tell us about Siege Warfare. Well, I mean, it's kind of a curious historical phenomena that, you know, during the global war on terror, siege warfare comes back as an urban tactic, you know, as we're, you know, most of, you know, the urban operations that we were doing, you know, are, are dealing with, uh, dealing with cities, sometimes small cities, sometimes really large cities like Fallujah. Um, a lot of times, you know, what, anytime we're doing some kind of urban operation, we, we cordon off the area, right? Um, and then we, you know, whatever, you know, it's a, it's, it's a raid or, you know, you know, some high value target or something like that. In the case of Fallujah though, the, the entire city was the target. So we completely cordoned off the city, blockaded it, uh, at every entrance and exit point all around the city, cut it off for days. And, you know, there was an air campaign, uh, leading up to then a, a ground invasion. It's classic siege warfare. Um, it didn't necessarily start in Iraq. I mean, you can even look to, to Palestine for some of the earlier precedents, like in, you know, the uh, uh, siege of Janine, Sarajevo even. But uh, nonetheless, um, this became a, a fairly common tactic, you know. Um, there were several cities in Iraq where there were the, in, the entire cities were sort of besieged in the, same, in the same sort of way. I'm blanking on some of the names at the moment, but... Fallujah, Mosul most recently in the war against ISIS. Rudba in Western Iraq was treated in much the same way, just a, on my following deployment. It was a small, much smaller town, but it was completely cordoned off with only three entry points. Only, and one of those was only for civilians. Yeah. So they continued that practice. And Ross, yeah. and, and, and can you share with us how, how big exactly, because we hear from Lucia, from Lucia, but, you know, can you give us a picture of how big that city is that, you know, actually, uh, to your best yeah. estimation, uh, and also the, the policy of, or the, the, the strategy of, of person's control of, you know, once you're pouring off the city, who gets in, who gets out, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, Fallujah is a big city. Um. Estimates range from 300 to 400,000, but traditional Arabic architecture doesn't have high rise buildings. So it's like sprawling. It's this really large city. Population wise, it's probably like similar to like, I don't know, Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, but in terms of just like, you know, uh, depth, it's, it's like a big sprawling city. So, I mean, dur during the second siege in November, 2004, I, I believe there were six battalions. To, it took six battalions to completely, you know, sweep through, to cordon off and sweep through the whole city. Um, I'm not, I, I wasn't on the, the cordon itself. My, my unit was one of the ones sweeping through the city, but I mean, you know, they would completely surround, they set up checkpoints and after the battle, the, the cordon stayed in place for years, all the way through till, uh, 2008, I believe there were checkpoints all around the city at the major entrance and exit points and. Fallujians were given ID badges and like ranked according to their security threat, like high, medium, or uh, low. And in order to get in and out of their city to either go to school in Baghdad or go find work in some outside town, because none of that is happening in Fallujah under siege, um, they had to go through these checkpoints and took 
hours for them to, to get out just to go, I don't know, sell vegetables or, or something like that outside of town. And there was, uh, you know, for the, for looking at what, at what became of the insurgency and how, um, how Fallujah, I wouldn't, it certainly wasn't the beginning of that, but it was one of the biggest aspects of, of the insurgency as it really kicked off there in, you know, late March, early, um, early April, 2004, um, that Fallujians had already had a, a whole host of incidents with the U.S. military in different ways. There was, uh, some mis, uh, I hate saying it this way, but there was some, some misdropped bombs from the Gulf War that fell onto market areas adjacent to Fallujah that killed dozens, if, if not more. And if anything, you know, coalition uh, casualty numbers are going to be low. Um, you had the, um, Roswell, you talked about the, um, the protests at the school, the shooting of the school. And there was another shooting that happened a little bit later. This was at the Bath headquarters where the, the, um, um, isn't that where the CPA had taken over or was it, I can't remember if it was the CPA or it was the Marines. Um, hold on. Is this an incident in September you're taking of? Um, no, no, this is, this is something different. This might've been the same day as the, um, the, the school massacre. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the headquarters, and then I think it yeah. might have moved downtown to the school. And then I think also in September there was another incident with um, new police forces. Fallujians wanted their local guys to be the ones policing the city. The CPA was trying to impose their newly trained police force on Fallujah, and there was a, a, a little skirmish there that killed about a dozen. Um. And then we also have, you know, one, one incredibly huge factor is just the overall treatment of Iraqis post Gulf war, but before the invasion that involved, um, bombings of different kinds, you know, operation desert Fox um, among others. Um, and of course the many, many, many deaths that were caused as, as a result of us sanctions. So, you know, it, it, it would, it would be really naive of anybody to look at it and not take that historical step back and know that even for the little that Fallujians had actually seen living in the flesh Americans, that they already had a very extensive and very bloody history, uh, with America up to that point. Um, and it's a really important point because, you know, here in the States, when the United States says we're going to help Iraq, Iraq build its democracy. Nobody really questions that here. We, we, we believe that our country, in a lot of cases it is, it has ge genuine goodwill towards these other countries and is trying to help. Iraq, for very good reasons, most Iraqis were really skeptical to those claims that were there out of, you know, a sense of goodwill to help them build their democracy. And there was a lot of things wrong with the way that we were going about it there. And Iraqis had very good reasons for being against it. But... It wasn't being well reported in the news. A lot of Americans didn't, Amer Americans just sort of think like elections equal democracy, that there is no real, like qualitatively better or qualitatively worse democracies. And since we're bringing democracy to Iraq, um, if they don't want it, then they're, they get lumped into this rejectionist camp, particularly Sunni Arabs where Sunni Iraqis were being lumped into this rejectionist camp because they were opposing 
you know, what we were trying to do in their country. But I mean, you know, you had the head of the CPA, Paul Bremer, who had his hundred orders, basically a hundred dictates that he was trying to have written into the new Iraqi constitution without any Iraqi consent, not even a plebiscite, no, not even like a, you know, a polling of Iraqi opinions on whether or not they wanted these like enormous sweeping changes the, the, that Paul Bremer was, was, um, enacting written into their constitution. Like they, they just weren't being involved in the process of building their democracy, which is obviously very problematic. Yeah. And, and pretty much when it comes down to, it comes down to this, uh, this ideology of the, uh, civilatory mission of the 18th century, the early 19th centuries, for example, you know, Western, you know, uh, you go back to the white, you know, to white man's burden where, uh, is the, is the, the, the burden and it is the responsibility of, 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 uh, you know, white, you know, imperial countries to spread, um, civilization around the world, right? You know, take our civilization and you put in democracy now, you know, which pretty much subject to the civilization, but it goes back to, back to the area, it goes back, I mean, it goes forward back to Napoleon's invasion of, of Egypt in 1798, you know, where they were, where they felt they have a civilatory mission as well to. You know, to enter this 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 country that was strange to them and just shape it into their will. Um, I mean, I recall going back to what you said earlier, uh, Ross, about the uh, the feelings towards towards uh, Saddam and the reasons that were given to us. You know, uh, as to why the 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 necessary to invade. I, I remember that vividly. I was in the military then. Uh, also, I was uh, a teenager during the uh, during the invasion or during the war in ninety. And when I, I remember that I joined the military shortly after the, uh, 1990, uh, in a war against Iraq, I remember seeing uh, Saddam going from, from hero to zero, because prior to 1990, Saddam was an ally. He was a good guy. Right. And then right overnight, you know, very Orwellian, uh, he became the most, he became the Attila the Hun overnight. You know, he became the new Hitler of the Middle East. So when I remember all the rhetoric of Bush senior talking about how, you know, how he became all the, you know, just overnight, you know, and it was, what was hypocritical about it was that when, when Saddam was a hero, when Saddam was the, you know, best friend America has in the Middle East, Bush Sr. was the uh, director of the CIA, you know, so Bush Sr. has had this relationship with Saddam, you know, through this, this transition. Um, also, you mentioned about the, uh, Henry mentioned about the, uh, the siege, the siege goes way beyond, beyond, beyond the, uh, siege of Fallujah. It goes all the way back to the sanctions in Iraq. I recall the Iraq, the sanctions being the most severe sanction ever imposed on any of the country. This was a UN sanction, by the way, nothing could go inside or outside, um, Iraq without, you know, these countries, sanctioning countries knowing about it. I remember the British and the army, uh, um, uh, planes, you know, Patrolling Iraqi skies, Iraq lost after 1990, lost its, its, its airspace, you know, it's just, it was being violated 24 seven. They were bombed throughout the, uh, the, the United as well. Um, the, uh, 1999, uh, act, uh, uh, HR four, four, six, 55, which became law, which is a congressional law that came out, uh, which is the, uh, the Iraqi freedom act which gave the United States the responsibility or the duty to, uh, to impose quote unquote democracy in Iraq and remove Saddam from, from, uh, from power. That was in 1998, 
you know, that was, that was prior 9-11. So, so the policy to move Sudan was there already, you know, they were working towards it already. Absolutely. Um, Scott, what you got, what you got to say, you know, to, to that? I need to learn to unmute too. I thought the space bar would do it. <laughs> um, no, well, the one thought I was having that, that you, you reminded me of, and I thought of earlier was that, yeah, what's interesting too, is the way we could very easily other a group of people and over very simple things. And to take an example, like, you know, I, I particularly remember being taught and it wasn't until, because I kept going on, I went four times over on deployments and by the fourth one, it, it dawned on me, they give you these culture, it, it, even by 2004, when I was getting ready to go to Fallujah, you know, we had as civil affairs, at least we were getting Iraqi cultural training, all the ways that they're different from you. You know what I mean? And to people in the military who are so, I mean, everyone's tuned into looking for differences, but Marines in particular, who are all identical can see microscopic differences between themselves and the Marine next to them, something that no one else can notice. And I felt like the cultural training we got sort of primed the pump to see them as different, even though it was meant to be understanding, uh, you know, they, this is when they, they, they don't like when you put their, you show them your feet and it's like, well, I wouldn't like if you stuff your dirty muddy boots on my furniture either. And, and, um, or they don't like when you come in their houses and, and, and look at, leer at their women. And it's like, yeah, I wouldn't appreciate anyone disrupting me in the middle of the night. And another example that you, you made me think of Ross was, um, the binoculars thing. I live in Baltimore and there's nowhere where it'd be normal to look at another human being with a pair of binoculars <laughs> or acceptable. Yeah. You no, know? uh, but we, we were sort of primed to see, well, that's just a cultural moray they have. And that's how they're different from us. When in fact, we're, it, it's something that makes us the same, but we're taught to see difference, uh, in, in a, in a, in a way that's percutious. Um, but it's well-intended. Yeah, it just, it just reminded me of uh, uh, what you just said there. Some of the sensitivities, uh, cultural training that we had also on that where, you know, where it said that it recommended lie to say, to save face. And that, was, and that was right there in the little booklet they gave us, right? You know, recommend lie to save face. <laughs> As if a Marine never did that once in their life. <laughs> and the, um, you know, for the, for the, specifically for the citizens of Fallujah, that the, you know, the demonization went even, even further than that, because they wanted to really create that image of, you know, uh, a city under siege or under control of the insurgents or the terrorists. There was a, a quote I, I found in a, it was an eyewitness to war report done by the army. It's filled with officers and senior NCOs. There wasn't a, a single junior ranking person that I could find, but they said uh, that one of the things that they briefed to people, quote, most of the inhabitants practiced extreme Wahhabism and were traditionally hostile to all foreigners, meaning anyone not for Fallujah. Well, Scott, just what you were bringing up, all of, you know, is like, I, okay, you're near, you want to know stuff about me. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from, you know, I'm from 7,000 miles away. Fuck you, dude. I don't, you know, and. I think that we all are when we're, when we're more keyed into it, but this was much more about saying these are their differences, not that we have the same differences so that we actually could understand why they did it. So we could understand why 
Iraqi men might lie to save face. Not that we don't do it. Not it's, it's certainly among the uh, military, but they wanted to they wanted to distill down and really, you know, just short of saying everyone there is a terrorist, everyone you run into is a terrorist, and that and that of course bleeds into the the overall strategy, especially during the first siege, and I. I I'm actually, I think uh, both of them, which was in terms of snipers, just shooting people down. Just it, it didn't matter once it had begun that the the Marine leadership had done kind of a hands-off thing. It wasn't something that was an official order, but it was something that they definitely enforced for themselves. Kid goes out of a house to to get some water for his family, gets shot. His parent goes to save their kid like anyone would absolutely do and also get shot in the process. They had no, they weren't insurgents, they weren't terrorists, they weren't any of those kind of things. They were people trying to survive. Um, but then again, so much of the story of Fallujah is just a, a walk through a park of war crimes of all kinds of different things, taking away the water and electricity from people, forcing all military aged males to stay uh, in the city while their family had to leave, which if you know anything about Islam and especially Sunni Islam is that, that that's just not the way their society works, that they're supposed to have, you know, male escorts with, with, uh, female relatives. But again, something else that we would call bizarro that we would never do anything like that, except that we fucking do. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, when I was reading through your thoughts on this, um, I had never until you said it that way considered. And I, I, um, and may if i i could try to rearticulate it because i still it never occurred to me until now that oh yeah we said all women and children can leave you know we we said everyone should get out everyone was uh, the, the whole this whole siege there was a, a constant propaganda campaign that you can leave and that only the good and we convinced ourselves that only the bad guys were going to be left behind um but of course like you said there's a million reasons why somebody, and I can give some examples that I encountered, why somebody might stay, be compelled to stay in the city. And since that father in the family is compelled to stay in the city for, to whether it's just to protect his livelihood, to try not to get looted, any myriad of uh, other reasons, I could give you some really interesting, with some examples we've talked about before, but, um, but I mean, the rest of the family needs to stay as well, you know? The example specifically that I encountered was a, a father of two, um, and it's very sad that the standard of care is as low as it was there, but there was a father of two mentally disabled, um, adult sons, um, who he knew he couldn't leave the city with. He knew he couldn't care. He, he, unfortunately, they, the interesting thing was they convinced themselves at first they had found some sort of torture chamber, but in the evenings he would handcuff his sons to the bed. Cause he was a, the sole caretaker for these adults who were severely mentally damn, you know, mentally, um, deficient. Let's say I, I'm failing My words are failing me badly at the moment. I, sorry, but, but he found them changed to the bed and, um, we found them chained to the bed and are like, what is this? This is a torture chamber. They're, 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 they're kidnapped. And, and it only took the interpreter to explain that. He couldn't leave the city because he knew that there was nowhere else he felt like he could keep them safe. And I can only imagine how horrible it was for not only for his two sons to process a battle going on around them and Marines kicking in their doors. And then the father trying to explain all of that had to be horrifying, but he, there was nowhere else for him to go. You know what I mean? 
And this, and we convinced ourselves that anyone that was still in the city would be a bad guy. And that, yeah, if they're running from house to house, it's, it's only because they're moving from one weapons cache to the next. And they're just, they've came up with this artful dodge where they think they can get away with the exploiting the ROE exploit. They're exploiting the rules of engagement by not carrying weapons is what legitimately Marines were convinced was true that they were leaving their weapon in one house to go to another weapon in another house. And they think they could, they could just walk across the street unarmed and we won't shoot them because the, those are the rules. Um, and Marines convince themselves that no, that's just cause he's moving, he's a bad guy. He's just moving from one cash. I would imagine that even the, even the gentleman with the, the disabled sons would end up dealing with a whole torrent of questions about his sons, because someone might be convinced that they were trying to fake it, that they were trying, this is a way that we can, we could leave the city as my sons will do this. I mean, it, it, I'm sure, I mean, you, you saw them, you, you, you understood that these were not people that were capable of being actual combatants, but I could see somebody stand in the line there, you know, it's like, Oh, sorry, these are fakers. You guys go back, you know, just, but, but it's that kind of cruelty that, um, that kind of underrides this whole thing. Yeah. It was very casual. And, and, um, this was preceding the battle, but you mentioned the water supply and it was more than the damage to the actual formal water supply. You might be aware in a lot of, um, developing countries and especially that's probably not the best term but um um in a lot of in iraq in particular there's you know water supplies being intermittent and whatnot they'll have a cistern for water on their roofs and in one of the um and when there were firefights i when we were in one this is pre-battle um we were we were when we didn't have anything else to shoot at of, of um the uh, the company Gunny or whoever was out there, we were sitting there not shooting at anything. He looks he looks at us on the truck. He's like, "What? Are, why are you shooting anything?" He's like, "Well, we don't see anything. We can shoot, you know, any targets." And he says, "Hit the water cisterns, deny the enemy." So we just started machine gunning all those cisterns on rooftops. We could see. Yeah, I was going to ask you that about the uh, tactic of drawing fire. You go into the place, um, and you know you're phone call enemies hiding somewhere. So you want to drop fire. So, you know, so you provoke fire to drop fire. How, how does that work? Uh, Ross, you, you, you want to, we weren't doing that. Um, I was in civil affairs. Um, but we were just, uh, we had, we were, um, in there, we had OPs surrounding the city, uh, to the North, um, along that road and they would get in contact and then they more or less use that as an excuse. And the one incident I was in, the reason we got involved was we happened to have had the forward air controller with us to go out and cite some places that were supposed to be non-fire, like basically, you know, hospital, um, mosques, things that shouldn't be bombed. Ideally we had, we had him with us and, uh, an observation post came under fire and they asked us to bring the forward air controller there instead of, because we were already leaving, we were already out on patrol with them. So we brought him there and then more or less, they used it as an excuse to move back the city by a couple hundred yards from where that OP was. They just dropped on every house within a hundred yards of the built of the OP and just leveled everything just to, to, to give them some more. They, I expl explicitly, we want more standoff from the OP. So it doesn't matter if we're taking fire from there or not. This is our excuse to, to flatten some buildings. Um, amongst other things. So I, I could speak to that, but, um, the reconnaissance by fire thing, I, um, 
I didn't personally encounter. So, yeah, we, we, I mean, similarly, we're operating with the assumption that there are no civilians in the city. Our command absolutely should have known better because the day before the, the ground siege started, Red Cross estimated 50,000 civilians were still in the city. In reality, it was probably at least 50,000. But uh, yeah, I don't know when it exactly started. Maybe second or third day, we started doing reconnaissance by fire. Just, you know, uh, come across a house, either spray it down with a 240 Gulf, throw a frag grenade inside the house first. Um, if you hear something, then, you know, we'd either call up the tanks, fire the main gun round, or, or we had bulldozers too. Sometimes we just started bulldozing the houses straight to the ground. Um, if you didn't hear anything, it was safe to go in. So, you know, uh, Scott, you kind of mentioned they had this kind of tunnel system where fighters were bouncing from, from house to house where they had different, um, you know, uh, firing positions set up. And it happened a couple of times where, you know, Marines would kick in a door and there's a machine gun behind a, a sandbag bunker and they just, they got, they got blasted. And after we lost a couple of guys, we just started putting our own welfare first and stopped taking these kinds of risks. So that's why reconnaissance by fire was being used in the first place. Um, even though, uh, um, it, it, it absolutely put civilians in danger. Us on the ground, we, there were very limited moments where we saw civilians, even, even after we saw civilians, we continued to operate with the assumption that that's somehow an exception. This is a city void of civilians. We don't need to care about anybody but ourselves in this particular instance. We don't have to safeguard anyone else's well-being or safety. Um, maybe a weekend, we got a, a command over the radio that we had to stop reconnaissance by fire. So it was alarming some people, but nonetheless, it went on for about a week unchecked. The understanding about the way that the, the homes are built in Fallujah, in Iraq and places, places similar to it was that because it's, you know, it's a cinder block house, it's a very, so, they're very solid structures. They last a really long time. And so they withstand to explosives and, and arms you know, reasonably well, especially compared to the kind of stuff we have here in the States that allowed the strategy that, that they could, you could frag the courtyards, you could frag every single room in a house there, you know, there, there really weren't many limits in that way. And so, and especially when it came around to using things like white phosphorus or thermobarics is that the, the, it really doesn't seem to me like they could have any kind of a good hold on how much more extensive damage was happening, not just to the buildings they were in, but if people were hiding in houses on either side, you know, thermobarics could end up collapsing people's lungs and doing all kinds of, all kinds of things. Um, and they've said it, what you mentioned, Ross, is that the, 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 you know, the, uh, the strategy, you know, it just became worse and worse as time went on because they did not want to have more Marine casualties, which I, I, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate not wanting anybody else to get hurt. But there's supposed to be that line in there that in terms of like civilian lives, are, are American troops willing to risk themselves for civilian lives? Why are they not? We were hearing that from, uh, I don't know if it was General Thomas Frank or, um, but yeah, General Thomas Frank, I remember him vividly because he said on an interview that, you know, that, that we're not in a business of, that he was asked about civilians. Casualty, and he said the American line of business of, of, of counting civilians' casualty, right? He said that on TV. And uh, there was another general, I'm not sure if it was him or someone else that, that said that, you know, he valued more the uh, 
the the life of a, of an American soldier is way time, you know, more valuable than that of of the Iraqi. Uh, therefore, that's people operate under that assumption. But Ross, I want to make a point to what you said about you know you you're operating under the void of civilian presence in the area. Why people would leave? They're given the chance to leave. I mean, you can bring a home. You can bring a home here to Katrina, for example. Uh, people were told to leave uh, New Orleans area, you know, and and people left, uh, but people stayed, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then when Katrina hit, the water, you know, the dikes broke and people started drowning and dying. And everything they were remember hearing people were saying that, well, you know, they were giving them the the opportunity to leave. Why would they stay in the city? Well, no one consider that you can leave the city if you can afford to leave the city. Only those who can afford to leave the city left the city, you know, this, but those who couldn't have to stay in, just like other things, you know, if I leave, someone will steal my stuff or bring it to my house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, we, we'll just weigh it out, you know, and, and, you know, it might not be that bad anyway, you know, people do that routinely when they're told to leave uh, their own hurricane, you know, people say, we just wait it out, we just wait it out because it's not gonna be that bad, you know, uh, et cetera. Like, Tons of reasons why would you, you won't leave a city. You know, I, I did a series of oral history interviews with some refugees from Fallujah living in Europe. And the way Fallujahs speak of people who, who have stayed in the city during the second siege, they referred to them as the families that stayed. Oh, they're, they're one of the families that stayed, like with reverence, as like a, as like a kind of honor for the people who, you know, had the car, like even what, you know, in the situation that Scott was talking about where they, they just didn't have like the means or the ability to leave the city. Um, nonetheless, they're treated, they're treated with honor that, that they had a sense of courage to not abandon their city in its most dire moment. We get asked often what people can do to help support the podcast. One really powerful way to help us grow and reach more people is to leave us a review. You can do that on iTunes, which is the best place to leave a review. iTunes does reach the most people these days. The next best place is Facebook. Go to our Fortress on a Hill Facebook page and look for the Reviews tab. Money is tight these days for everyone, especially in the lingering shadow of COVID. Penny-pinching to make it through the month often doesn't give people the funds to contribute to a creator they support. So we consider it the highest honor that folks help us fund the podcast in any dollar amount they're able. Patreons is the main place to do that. And for supporters who can donate $10 a month or more, they will be listed right here as an honorary producer, like these fine folks, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, James Higgins, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Rick Coffey, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great Fortress merch. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Scott, you and I talked a bit about the um, about what the what what the coalition was doing in terms of providing 
people a place to go in outside the city and, you know, little shanty towns and that, the, I think it was a college. Was it a college that you would mention? It was a technical college up to the north uh, west of the city that we kind of arranged to ha- warehouse some people and then a, uh, a town to the northwest called Sacloia. We sort of fall back to make further camps there. And so, so yeah, we, there we did at least our one of our tasks, our main task during the battle was prior to was identifying a, a location for refugees we expected. It wasn't unexpected. Um, and we, we didn't, I couldn't recall the numbers, but you know, it, we were expecting at least a few thousands. Um, and then as a part of that, we, um, we ended up sort of, and it's funny you mentioned, I'm sure to those are, as the battle unfolded, we are, it kind of became our battle rhythm to as the units were collecting, usually their company or platoon headquarters, any civilians they came upon, um, we would go and collect them up and bring them out of the city and then hold them through the night so that we could release them in the morning when it was safe for them to walk up the road towards Sacloia and where the engineer, where this place, um, where we had made for, further arrangements. Um, and that's how we came, you know, I came to a counter and sit usually overnight as like, wa- you know, watching them and, you know, because we had to, we had to keep an eye on them and deal with the, you know, some of the wounded, some of the minor wounds, if they were seriously wounded, they were evacuated, but minor wounds, having a medic look at them and sitting with these fa- these various families and just giving them a meal. Um, uh, that's where I ended up interacting with them each night as they were collected. And then by day we were kind of touch base with those companies and they were direct. We ended up, we ended up basically after the third or fourth day and a mom who we had evacuated came to us with some other citizens and more or less offered to, as a, as a, well, we were at least the Marine Corps was the battalion was suspicious of it, but it worked out relatively well to basically bury the bodies of the dead as part of their Muslim duty. So he organized his congregation and brought them to us and we would bring them in in the morning and search bodies while they collected them. We would search them, they would collect the bodies and bring them out of the city for burial. And at the same time, we would collect living civilians and bring them to this collection point to hold them overnight. Um, which was, you know, a pretty grisly task, right? Um, but, um, it's how at least we ended up spending most of the battle was, and it's just funny cause you know, I was only, I guess in reality for our battalion, it was maybe 50 to a hundred each night they brought us, um, of civilians, um, which would seem spread to a, a whole battalion worth of Marines. Maybe they would have encountered one or two of those each the actual infantrymen that were kicking indoors. So they would see it as this aberration. Whereas I was seeing this other picture of where were a lot of people here and a lot of them in circumstances I could empathize with, you know, I, I recognized why they were there when, you know, mother with dementia or a bunch of small children, just a bunch of reasons why they couldn't leave or didn't. And they gave their stories and that, uh, that started to, you know, crack me a little bit, but I just saw it at, at you know, it's the strange thing. I, I, um, it, 
it almost, the civil affairs thing even existing, I think, because on my second deployment, I encountered this with infantry Marines. It gives them, it almost gives more license to do bad because we have, oh, we have this one group of people who's supposed to be doing good. And I felt, well, I'm doing this job where I'm supposed to be doing the good things and helping out and alleviating the suffering and mitigating it or minimizing the likelihood of suffering. But then in the bigger picture, it just allows, I mean, I've seen Marine just on the lower scale when we were in Fallujah, you know, we can, well, the civil affairs guys are here. They'll pay for the damage. We can loot. We could take all the cigarettes we want because they're going to pay for the damage, you know, um, was, was there, was there the more, um, it's a more, we just, we're there to create moral hazard almost. There's somebody else that'll take care of the mess so we can, we don't have to worry about it. Um, it's just an unfortunate aspect. And I, I don't know if there's a better way to deal with it. I mean, is it better to have somebody on, you know, at least trying to clean up the mess or, you know, it's better not to be done at all is the truth, but, um, just a thought I'm having. <laughs> well, it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. I, I guess it's, I guess it's kind of part of it, what, what they would put under information operations, but in terms of like, I'm sure there were probably were some mortuary affairs guys or other guys, you know, doing something there, but in terms of the number of people that actually died and in terms of trying to deal with any of it, because even if you don't care about the lives that dead bodies release certain toxins that destroy the environment. If that was a step that the the coalition was willing to take to try to help with that, we certainly didn't see it. You know, thankfully, you guys were connected with those people who saw it as their duty to bury their countrymen at a at a harsh time. But you know, Scott, for you know everything that that you and I talked about as far as the civil affairs um, aspect of it and creating these places for them to go to evacuate civilians. Um, the, the, what was it? The medical aid package that was given to the hospital after they took control of the hospital. Yeah. You know, just these, these little, little placating things, these little extra things that can make it seem like, oh, it's not such a bad deal because if they're doing this negative thing, at least they're doing this other positive thing, but there's no balance to it whatsoever. And, and of course, like if, if we're to say, you know, like Red Cross numbers say we're, we're estimating about 50,000 people left in the city. That means that 250,000 people, because it was at about 300,000 people around the end of March, beginning of April, before everything began. You can't tell me that the coalition did anything close to housing those people, even for a short amount of time, that people, hopefully they had family to go to. If they didn't, they found, you know, a little shanty place or whatever. And then, of course, there was no city really to go back to, especially after the second siege. The majority of the buildings were destroyed. People and people just didn't want to go back. And I don't blame them. Who, who would want to return to a place, especially after all those things that happened? And you don't even know if your home's still standing or, you know, how many of your neighbors are still alive and having to deal with all of the steps that come with that. Yeah, and I, um, I am going to have to leave. But with that thought, like you're you're absolutely right that I mean, we gave passing thought to people who were leaving prior, but it more or less was up to them. That was their problem. Even as civil affairs, we, we didn't have the time or mental space to be like, well, yeah, get out of the city. We're telling you, get out of the city. We're not telling you, we don't have a place for you to go arranged. We're not telling you where you can go or that, you know, we're going to take care of you. If you leave, it's, you need to get out. It's get out of, it's get out of New Orleans. Not, we have an evacuation center for you here or there. 
It's just, you get out, figure it out yourself. And one of the peculiarities that I remember, there was uh, some very, some specificity about um, what we would call these people because they weren't refugees. Civil affairs would never have called them. We got classes on this beforehand. They were internally displaced persons. Um, you can't call them. They are IDPs. Don't, don't say that word in front of the media. Don't use that word in front of anyone. They are internally displaced. Cause if you call somebody a refugee, that could trigger UN regulations on refugees that they should be provided for. So IDPs don't fall under any particular legal category and don't have to be provided for necessarily. You do it out of the kindness of your heart. If you acknowledge a refugee and displace them from their home, our military would be responsible for their care and housing. And they didn't want that. So we called them, we called them IDPs and it was for a reason. And that kind of speaks to all that. It's, it's kind of like a wordplay, like, for example, uh, the term, uh, what, what was the term that was used? Unlawful combatant hmm. Um, it's, it's a wordplay because, you know, um, in the one hand, the Bush administration, uh, declared this war, uh, this war on a, on a, on a tactic, which is, which is, you know, terrorism tactic, right? A political or military tactic. So he declared war on this, on this tactic, uh, and those engaged in this, in this war, uh, they call them unlawful combat, right? If you were to war, whether the opponent is signatory of this new convention, or not right. There are the convention guarantees, right? You know, you gotta, yes. you know, you, you know, you have to treat in certain ways, you know, after the conflict is over, you have to let go. Uh, you know, exchange, think be patriot back to their countries, et cetera, et cetera. So that's part of the, part of being a POW, right? Uh, but at the same time where you're unlawful, that means that you're not supposed to be in the, the battle space anyway, right? So that makes you a criminal. So if you're a criminal, if you're a criminal person, right, that means that you have to be afforded, uh, a trial, you know, to convict you, to try you, et cetera, right? So what the Bush administration was trying to play here is that these people were neither criminal that they're not, you know, they're, they were, they won't have to offer them a trial, but at the same time, they were truly combat, so they won't have to abide by the Geneva convention. They, have, they didn't have Geneva convention rights, you know, so they were like kind of a limbo. They were neither this or that. So that's why you still have people in, in, in Guantanamo after all this, you know, after 20 years, you know, with no trial, you know, cause they're not either, they're not either a criminal or they're not either a POW. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me that, that really speaks to the whole nature of OIF and the, the way battles are won in this new, like bizarre kind of warfare that, w that we have in these days. And the, the sieges of Fallujah really illustrate this because you, you don't achieve military victory by traditional military actions, right? By like capturing territory, defeating the enemy. It, it's a battle of perceptions. And if you, even if you look at the operation orders that are written up for like, you know, Operation Al-Fajr or Operation Vigilant Resolver or, or something like that, Written into the operational objectives is information operations, achieving, you know, certain informational goals, because if you don't create the correct perceptions, if you can't create this, um, veneer of legitimacy for what you're doing, then it's a military failure in the first siege of Fallujah was way less destructive than the second yet, because there was an Al Jazeera broadcast crew in the city and they captured like 
actual children being like pulled out of the, the rubble of these bomb belt buildings, it was considered a humanitarian disaster and the U.S. had to negotiate a withdrawal out of the city. Second siege of Fallujah, they took the information operations much more seriously. And we can talk more about the way they were treating um, civilian casualties as I.O. challenges, right? Like they were avoiding um, killing civilians simply because of the way they thought it would play in the media and hinder their, uh, their military objectives. Nonetheless, because, you know, of all the different things that they were doing to control the media environment around the second siege, it was far more destructive. Thousands more civilians were killed, yet this was considered a liberation. So it just speaks to like the kind of warfare and how this, you know, it, it's all about spin and a battle of perceptions. Um, in this like vague, effusive language in order to, you know, to, to create this veneer of legitimacy. I wanted to ask you about that just because, you know, the embedded reporters were told to just go with the government line, like don't do anything else other than that. And that speaks to why there was not a lot of pushback anywhere because they weren't allowed to even talk about it. So can you shed more light on that? The way it was presented to the public, the use of these embedded journalists is like, oh, this has given us frontline access to the battlefield. And you get to like, you know, view this in a way that, you know, Americans haven't in any past war. It's like, you know, it's exciting. It's, you know, you're right there with the soldiers. And I, I honestly, I think it's a little manipulative of the way it, it uses soldiers in this kind of storytelling, because, you know, Americans, we, we, we trust our soldiers. We love our soldiers. They have this really like special status in our society. And really, like their their experiences, and this is foregrounded in that kind of story. But what it also does is it relegates Iraqis deep into the background. We never hear from Iraqis in this kind of like embedded reporting. So you get the military's like rationales and their their perspective and their viewpoints. All of this up front. Iraqis are far off in the distance, and it's absolutely kind of propaganda. It was treated as a an, um, uh, it, it wasn't a psychological operation. Technically, it was public affairs but nonetheless under this umbrella of information operations. And really, like, that's the way the battle was won. Um, will you talk about, about um, some more of what they coined the IO challenges, the, the, the hospital, stuff like that? Yeah. Um, the, the, the way that they were talking about this and discussing the way that they were going to conduct the information operations is pretty chilling because they knew that they weren't able to achieve any of their military objectives, even though they were mil militarily superior during the first siege. I mean, the insurgents that were in the city put up a, an unexpectedly good fight, but nonetheless, they weren't going to like, you know, force the Marines out under fire. Um, they, the Marines had to withdraw because of, for political reasons. They knew this and they knew that they just needed to do something to make sure that rather than trying to like avoid civilian casualties altogether, like not conducting combat operations in residential neighborhoods, they were looking for ways that it would be less prominent in the news coverage. So telling civilians to evacuate, that was actually a PSYOP. That was conducted as a PSYOP so that there wouldn't be civilians present on the battlefield. Um, as Scott was talking about, it was, it was a little bit of like a, a placating factor in order to make it seem like, you know, we, we were genuinely concerned right, about their well-being and that this was a liberation and we were doing this for them. I, I, I'm not, I don't believe that any of the Marines involved in planning this operation did this maliciously. 
but within the, the, you know, the mindset of these information operations with the, the sort of vocabulary and the framework that they were working within, it, it sounds a little bit cold hearted. So at, in order to avoid civilian casualties being reported in the news, they just simply tried to remove the civilians from the battlefield. Then also as another uh, factor, they embedded 96 journalists or I think 92 journalists within the different military units to cultivate this frontline perspective uh, of the battle itself. And so it became this highly like choreographed uh, operation, right? And there was no alternative or independent media allowed in the city, whereas there was Al Jazeera broadcast city in Fallujah during the first siege. If any other uh, independent Arab media tried to get into Fallujah, they would have been arrested during the second siege. The narrative was tightly controlled, tightly choreographed uh, by the U.S. military through this um, information operations um, uh, infrastructure, whatever you want to call it, apparatus. There was a, a, a quote from your book that I, I thought was that really succinctly put this, is that, in other words, the, the IO, the information operations threshold, was not about the actual level of violence used, but rather about limiting the extent to which it was reported in the media to avoid a quote unquote adverse political and public reaction so, so that the US uh, shaping operations and later attacks could be conducted with impunity. Um, you know, even, even, uh, even evacuating the civilians to a certain extent was a measure of IO operations because just fewer witnesses, just as pe people cannot talk about, you know, I was in this house two blocks away and this happened. If the people aren't there, they're, they're not sharing those stories. And it makes it that much easier to tell the propaganda line. And you but, know, I, it, it even goes into the months leading up to, to the second siege, because if you remember the, the first year of, of the occupation, the U S didn't want to say that they were facing an insurgency, they were labeling all of the fighters around, around Iraq, Athos diehards. They were, they weren't even international jihadists yet. There was, there was, there was like a negligible Al Qaeda presence in the country. They weren't talking about that. These were just either criminals or old former regime elements, right? But then the, there was a psyop that started January of 2004, uh, where they started to sort of exaggerate the role of this guy, Abu Musawil Zarqawi, insinuate that he was in Fallujah. The first, um, th these were intentional leaks that they made to Dexter Filkins at the New York Times. Um, leaking some uh, Zarqawi communications um, where he was claimed to be in Iraq and was communicating with some of the uh, Al-Qaeda financiers. Um, probably, you know, real documents, real communications. Nonetheless, there's really no hard evidence to say that Zarqawi had any presence in Fallujah, like ever, or had a significant leadership role within the Iraqi insurgency. Um, by all the evidence that I've been able to gather for this book and just, uh, in general, um, the insurgency in Fallujah was 90% local. There was a small international jihadist element, maybe 10%. Um, it appears that they were not light. They were not well liked within Fallujah. They were considered sort of like cowboys who did not have Iraq's best interests at heart. They kind of showed up as like adventurous with their own sort of political goals to wage you know, religious war against the Shia and reinstate a caliphate. But in reality, the, the majority, it, yes, all of the fighters in Fallujah, they were religious, they were Muslims, and there was the strand of Wahhabism in Fallujah. 
that wasn't the, the major motivating factor for why they were fighting against us. They, they were Republicans. They were hardcore Republicans who believed, who valued deeply Iraqi sovereignty. And that's really what the fight was about for them. Um, and the, the information operations pres began presenting them to the American public in the spring of 2004 as religious extremists motivated by religious injunction to fight against us, irrational anti-Americans, extremist, you know, religious doctrine, not like, you know, a very relatable, you know, sentiment, like, you know, uh, in, in their, their national sovereignty, a willingness to fight for their country, to force foreign invaders out. That's something I think most Americans would find relatable. Um, I think if a foreign country invaded, invaded the U.S. and tried occupying here, I, I'd like to think that I might fight back. I'm sure most Americans would, especially the people who identify as Republican in this country. If it was, if Iraqis were allowed to like explain themselves to the American public and explain why they were fighting against us, I think most Americans would have found it very relatable. But it was, the information operations had to obscure that. They had to sort of present this other choreographed narrative to the American public. I mean, that's what the movie Red Dawn is about, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so look, uh, so look at the word insurgent, right? The word insurgent uh, is uh, quality or state of being insurgent specifically, a condition of revolt against a government that is that is less than an organized revolution and that is not recognized as a religious, right? That's the term of, of insurgent, right? So insurgent implies that the, that it's a revolt against the standing legal government, you know, constitutional government, legal government, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, and if you recall in history, right, they used to call the, 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 uh, the war against the Filipinos at the beginning of the 1900s, they called the, the Filipino insurgency until recently, recently they changed it into the Philippine war. Why? Because they were fighting against an occupying power, which was the United States. Right. So by calling them insurgents, right. It was, it was implying that the occupying power in the Philippines were the local there were, were the international record international recognized legal government in the philippines and that people that were fighting against americans in the philippines were insurgents they were they were going outside of the law uh to fight these people right so it, it was it was recently changed now now you look it up in the book it's called the Philipp the philippine american war because because the americans were the occupier there they imposed themselves they were the colonial power right so the people had the right to revolt against the colonial power which is in just in the United in the United Nations Charter, uh, a an indigenous population has its right to rebel and revolt and fight a war of liberation against an, a foreign occupying power. Just like you say, uh, Ross, that it was sold to the American people that we were liberators, not occupiers. That we were sold to us that we were received by people with flowers, like the like the Americans were received in, in Paris. You know, after you know. Um, and parades and flower, and that didn't happen. So by labeling um, the resistors, by labeling the uh, the people fighting the Republicans or the, or the people fighting for sovereignty as insurgent, right? We're we're implying that they were operating outside of the legal, constitutional, or international recognized law, which implied that the Americans Bremer was the law <laughs> and or was the legal government in Iraq when in fact he was, you know. Yeah. No, for, for exactly that reason, in this new project that I'm working on, we're, we're trying to shift the language. It's similarly a revisionist project to, to, to the book that I contributed to. Um, and we're trying to talk, um, talk about the Iraqi insurgency as the Iraqi partisan movement, similarly to the partisans in Italy during World War II, right? 
it, it's a very comparable situation actually, because they're under, they're under Nazi occupation fighting against, um, the, the Republic of Salo, right? <laughs> the, uh, the Italian collaborator government collaborating with the, with the Nazis. It's a government that didn't have any real legitimacy, except for the legitimacy that they claimed for themselves. Um, in the same sort of way, you know, the Iraqi, the Iraqi partisans saw themselves as fighting against an illegitimate government that was being formed under occupation, which technically, according to international law, is illegal. You, you can't write a constitution under, under occupation. So they saw themselves as a legitimate part national liberation movement. And for that reason, we argue partisan is technically a more accurate term than either jihadist or insurgent or, you know, several other pejorative labels that have been thrown at them. Or you can run elections either. You can't run election on the occupation either. Um, another thing I want to point out there, uh, Ross, now you talk, we're going into the uh, insurgents, right? Uh, have. Were you aware of the story of Colonel James Steele? Of um, uh, yeah, yeah, talk about the, the connection with El Salvador. Yeah, the Salvadorization of Iraq during the beginning of the resistance uh, against American troops there. Right, it was more uh, American was, was causing uh, was getting a lot of heavy casualties at the beginning. You know, uh, when that when when it started around you know four or whatnot, there was getting a lot of heavy casualty. Right, and it was more along nonpartisan line, right? There was, there was, there was Sunni Shiites, you know, leftists, you know, um, people, uh, Iraqis that, that, you know, uh, we call them, uh, uh, non-religious people, uh, uh, secular, you know, there was, it was, it was more, it was more of a combined effort, right? To repulse. Yeah, absolutely. To push, to push out the, the invaders, right? But with the salvadorization of, of Iraq, what it created, it created, it trained it created uh, virtually death so pretty much people uh, within the, uh, the the Iraqi newly created army created uh, 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 ghost battalions of ghost units, you know, to actually operate outside of of, of, of laws of war and, and create this this uh, friction among all the fighters and whatnot. And then after that, then you just went into a civil war. And then when they went into a civil war, that's when American casualties started dropping a little bit, you know, after after they started fight, uh, fighting against themselves. Is that, is that accurate uh, description or can you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the only thing that I would add to that is when I, when I conducted my, my world history interviews and I'm speaking with Iraqis about this, they don't use the term civil war. That's something that the American media was using to, to sort of gloss over this. They spoke of it as the militia war. Because really, they didn't see it as a, a, like a society-wide war. It was for them. It wasn't Sunni versus Shia, even though that sort of sectarian identity became very um, politically sensitive at that time. Um, and most of this was being happening under the auspices of the Iraqi Ministry of Interior. That's where a lot of these, you know, ghost battalions, these police commando units, who were being trained and funded, you know, uh, by by the by the occupation by by U.S. forces. Um, they were basically operating under the Ministry of Interior with impunity, targeting Sunni communities, um, abducting people, torturing them, then dumping the bodies into the Euphrates River, you know, at the end of the day. And that went on for, you know, 2006 into 2007. At the peak of it, it was like a thousand bodies a day. The media presented it in, in you know, in truth, I, um, I can't really speak authoritatively on the way information operations were influencing the way the media might've been representing this. Nonetheless, the representation was that, um, 
these sectarian um, sentiments within Iraq, the sectarian conflict is something very old. It's been going back a thousand of years in the absence of a strong state, centralized state structure to, you know, keep this from happening. Just, you know, this bloodshed just sort of boilable. It's just something that sort of happened naturally. And that's not really the case at all. As you're saying, like th this was a divide and conquer tactic, right? They very deliberately polarized these sectarian identities, armed them against one another, setting out these forces under the Ministry of Interior against what they saw as the real threat in the country at the time, the, uh, the insurgency within the Sunni Triangle, right? Ironically, <laughs> it got out of control. And then all of these militias operating under the Ministry of Interior, by the time of 2007, they, they were the main threat at that point, got out of control. And then, you know, um, Petraeus comes in with his new counterinsurgency doctrine to rein them in. Right. So the, the target at that point, yes, U.S. casualties started uh, dropped at that point because these militias were targeting, targeting other Iraqis. Um, and that was our fault. But even, even, you know, earlier, you know, leading up to, and as, uh, the beginning of the, of the first siege that there were, um, Sunni sheiks and leaders who were very, very adamant about, we don't allow, um, we don't allow extremists in our, in our circles and we eject them. We, and then they very, very firmly said, this is not something that we find acceptable, but that was still the line that the U S used as far as trying to demonize why they, you know, they're accepting Zarqawi, they're accepting all of his, his worst guys. Like you said, Ross, we, we can't even prove that he was actually there at, yeah. you know, at all, but it really, it made the, made the difference, but they, yeah, it doesn't seem like that the, the majority of the Sunni community was ever really accepting of Al Qaeda of any of these other, other groups. Um, and then of course the awakening came and what was, you know, the, the, the idea that Petraeus strategy was actually working when it only was, it only had a very limited shelf life and then things changed again. Yeah. I mean, the tragic irony of the second siege of Fallujah is it had the, the opposite consequences of what they, they wanted it to. Um, and when I, when I speak with Iraqis from Fallujah and ask them about these, um, foreign jihadist elements that were in this, in their city. They speak of them with, with rancor, with like pure hatred, because they say they were the first ones to abandon the city prior to the second siege. It was the locals who stayed and, and tried to fight and the local, the local, uh, partisan movement was decimated because of the second siege in that after that, there was no one to hold, uh, these jihadist elements in check and they took over the city afterwards. So I, I you know, the tragic irony is like, you, we actually ended up giving the city to Al Qaeda because of the second siege of Fallujah. There's some great journalism by Nir Rosa, who documented in the summer of 2004, the, the Mujahideen Council in Fallujah, which was sort of the, the governing organization, organizing all the different militia groups in Fallujah, because it was a decentralized um, uh, insurgency in Fallujah, um, loosely governed by the Shura Council. But the Shura Council was strong enough to eject different um, foreign elements who either were like kidnapping for ransom or were enforcing uh, Sharia law when they, when they weren't supposed to be doing, we were doing different things that just were like irritating locals and they kicked them out of the city because they had the power to do so. They were capable of keeping these foreign elements in check, but after the second siege of Fallujah, they couldn't anymore. Ross, so 
I know you got a book, you got a book out, but I, I first became in contact with you with one of your earlier works, which is, was Fear Not the Path of Truth, a veteran's journey after Fallujah. That was actually when I first joined uh, the Iraq Veterans Against the War, uh, anti-Iraq War veteran organization back in 2013, I believe. Uh, when I first joined up, uh, that's one of the first piece I came across. It was one of my first actions, actually. My first action was uh, to, to share it, to screen, share, screen uh, that film at, mm -hmm. a, at a local college. And, and that's when I got in contact with you and we collaborated. And, you know, I, I think I gave you like, we were doing email exchanges and, you know, you helped, you helped me create a flyer and you helped me create uh, different talking points and everything. This, up to that point, I've never done any type of advocacy or any type of, uh, you know, uh, activism, anything like that. I was just really, really, really distraught when it just happened, you know? Um, so and one of the curious things that, that came across that, that screening, I screened like at a local college, I got a contact with a local professor and he let me borrow his class. He bribed him with uh, extra credit after, you know, it was after hours. We had about good 30 students there, right? Uh, brought, brought pastries, donuts, and, and I brought a, a you know, iced tea and everything and this and that, right? So we watched the film and after the film, we had uh, a good discussion. And I would say that the kids, the people in those room were on average in their, you know, between 19 to probably mid twenties, stuff like that, right? Uh, there was one veteran, you know, um, he was a student there, uh, but for the most part, what? None of them were veterans, they were just they were civilians you know, around that age frame. I was surprised, you know, that wasn't too far removed from, from Iraq. I think Iraq was still going on. They were still talking a little bit about, not as much, but a little bit about Iraq media. Uh, I would say that was 2014 when that happened. And most of the students there, they didn't have a clue. It was something vague in their memory. <laughs> you know, the war in Iraq was vague in their memory. Nile was so, so vague in their memory. You know, they, they know about Lion 9 11 because they kept hearing it a lot. You know, but they didn't know much about the Iraq war. They didn't know much of what was going on. Just so vague in their memory. Do you have, do you guys input anything on that? Yes, sure. I guess had that experience as well. Talk to people. You just, you just kind of erased. You just got in their memory. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been doing this long enough where my work has sort of shifted from activism to advocacy now to memory work, you know, because now it's, it's almost 20 years you know, since the second siege of Fallujah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old. I'm a middle-aged man now. And, uh, you know, the question is no longer, you know, it, it used to be, what can I do now to prevent further bloodshed in Iraq? Or what can I do now to alleviate suffering in Iraq? And, you know, we had different campaigns that we were working on to raise awareness about birth defects in Fallujah, support the hospital, this and that. Uh, but now like there, there's just like you said, it's a distant memory for most Americans. You know, I, you know, I teach in college and high school these days and most of my students, they were little kids when this was happening. They, they have no real memory of this. And it, it, it feels sadly ironic to me that something like, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is going on right now. And there's all this like moral outrage. How could Putin do this? How could he invade another country? <laughs> Guys, we've <laughs> done this a couple of times now, but that, that awareness just isn't there. So for me, the question now is, you know, how do we make this a, a vivid, critical memory within the American public? And I've been trying using different media, 
you know, doing videography, making a documentary movie, writing an academic book. Um, you know, I, I'm experimenting with different, you know, kinds of media on how we're going to reach the public, create this kind of conversation, create a, a persistent kind of, you know, critical textured memory of like what actually happened. And, uh, can't say I've had a ton of success, but, uh, you know, it's an ongoing project. There was a term in your book that I noticed, I noticed today for the first time. And I, I think it's really prescient for, for Andy Warwork and for the, for discussing these kind of things. And it was binary reportage mm -hmm. and that we have to understand that American narratives, especially American news narratives are, it really can only go in one direction that the United States is good. And then whoever we were against was bad. And that's, you know, that that's if, um, you know, if your students do anything, I'm sure that they, they, they knew up to, to, to that understanding, you know, um, but we have to be, we have to be continually seeking, you know, better sources, new sources, you know, that I, I applaud you, man, going through different types of media, trying to see, you know, what works, what doesn't, what, um, you know, I, I've, I've been absolutely floored by your book. It was, it's, it's an amazing piece of work and it's, it's, um, you know, and, and not just, not just in terms of understanding Fallujah, but, you know, you want a real microcosm on the war in Iraq and the, you know, the history of U.S. foreign policy, say 1980 to now, but even earlier by what Giovanni connected earlier with the, you know, the Philippine American war, um, or was the Spanish American war anyway, um, but, uh, you know, that we have to keep pushing, we have to, you know, and, and most people still aren't going to notice, but that doesn't mean that there isn't, there isn't, uh, injustice there that it needs to be, needs to be dealt with and needs to be discussed. And, and, you know, hopefully I, I hope that there will be a day when, when Americans aren't as ignorant and aren't willingly as ignorant of what their country does overseas of the horrifying things that we do overseas and, and pretend it's, it's. Pretend it's all okay. Pretend that it's accept it's an acceptable loss, you know. Um, oh, it, and and uh, we, we didn't we didn't cover this in much detail, but uh, destroying the the economic power of Fallujah that there was a, an entire series of state run companies that were there providing Fallujah and Fallujah and Iraqis with all kinds of things with wheat with rice with you know different stuff. There was a whole bunch of things, and because of the neoliberal aesthetic that every U.S. intervention comes with, one of the first, uh, one of the, those hundred orders of, from Bremer at the start of the war was we're closing all this stuff down. We're going to, we're going to bring in, we're going to make it happy for capitalism. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a terrifying thing, but I, you know, I'm, I, I applaud you for continuing with it, man. I applaud you for, for staying, you know, and, and, and trying to learn about it from as many right, people thank as you can. You know, I'm, I'm always appreciative of these opportunities to continue to talk about this and try to, you know, raise these issues. No, it's, 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 uh, it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely pivotal to what we do. I think that's a pretty good place for us to wrap it up for today. Um, Ross, thank you again for, uh, for being here, for sharing your experiences and me. your, your work. Um, I can say a hundred percent certain we will have you back again, uh, hopefully for some, some other, other discussions, but maybe on, on more on Fallujah. Um, will you, um, so we have, uh, you have your documentary, uh, if you're not the path of truth, which is an amazing watch, everybody should watch it. 
Um, I may include a few audio clips of it here at the end of the episode to kind of get people looking at it. And then you have the, uh, the siege of Fallujah, the, the book that you wrote. Um, will you, um, let people know where they can uh, follow and find your work? Probably not as well set up for this as I should be. <laughs> I don't have like a <laughs> centralized place, uh, where I, you know, keep all my stuff that I'm working on. Um, you know, I would just encourage anyone to reach out to me personally. You know, I have Twitter, I have Facebook, you know, feel free to sure. look me up. I also, you know, I would just give a heads up that, you know, the 20th anniversary of the Anglo-American invasion is coming up this coming spring. Yeah. And myself and some colleagues, um, we're trying to put together a, uh, a new project to kind of keep Iraq, to keep um, the invasion and occupation of Iraq alive in, in American memory called Archive Iraq. And basically it's just going to be a, a centralized digital archive, all, you know, um, publicly available materials, um, public domain materials with educational sort of, um, digital exhibits, things that can be brought into the classroom, things that, you know, we hope will just be engaging for people to read at home. And so this is what I'm working on these days. It'll be available, you know, come March 19, 2023, 20 years after all this madness. Ross, you, you also have a, a foundation that you started as well, right? For like uh, reparation. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we, we uh, don't quite have the manpower to do what we were doing in the past. Um, I'm part of the Isla Reparations Project. It's a California-based 501c3. And we had done a lot of uh, solidarity work, reparations work, particularly with the Fallujah Hospital, bringing them, uh, we got them like ultrasound equipment and stuff like that. Uh, what happened to the Fallujah hospital is a, another tragedy that we could devote an entire episode to, um, supporting them with their birth defects crisis. In recent years, it's just been harder and harder to fundraise around Iraq. The American public is, um, distracted, you know, particularly during the, the Trump presidency, people's attention were on trying to mitigate the damages there. People's attention was towards, you know, being in solidarity with, with black people and black lives. Um, understandable. Um, in Iraq, unfortunately, has kind of um, been in the background of all this. So we, we really haven't had the capacity to be very active with the Isla Reparations Project. But we're hoping to just make the Archive Iraq more of an educational project to work more with uh, educators, college classrooms, high school classrooms, create publicly available, you know, uh, materials and resources, all free, of course. Sounds great, man. We, uh, I will, I'll definitely get with you about the, uh, the, uh, archive release and we'll, uh, I'll help you. I'll do some, we'll do some social, uh, social media campaign stuff and maybe we can have you back for an episode around. Then again, we can talk about that in, uh, more in depth. That'd be fantastic. While we're choosing to end the discussion here, be sure to pick up Ross's book, The Siege of Fallujah, for a more comprehensive breakdown of the many ways the U.S. occupation destroyed Fallujah physically, environmentally, and psychologically. All right. Well, I think that'll uh, that'll do it for us uh, here today at Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for everybody uh, for listening. And uh, you folks take care. We'll see you next time. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify.
You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. song.